Hey there, this is the podcast Walking with Dante, and I'm Mark Scarborough, and we have come to the fourth circle of hell. We are on the seventh canto of Inferno, or at least starting it. We are walking slowly through Dante's masterwork comedy. Here we go. Inferno, canto seven, lines one through thirty-five. Papi Satan, Papi Satan and Alepe. Plutus started in with a clucking voice, and my well-heeled sage, who knew all things, said this to me. Don't let your fear hurt you. No matter his power, he won't impede our way down this rock slab. He then turned to confront the puffy face and said, Shut up, cursed wolf. Let the rage inside you devour you. This trip to the depths is not without a cause. It's willed on high, where Michael made his vendetta against the prideful blitz. As sails, billowed in the wind, fall into a knotty mess when the mainmast gives way, so that cruel beast fell to the ground. In this way, we descended into the fourth pit, observing more of the sorrowful rim that puts all of the evil of the universe in a sack. Ah, God's justice, who could stock all this new torment and pain that I saw? And why does our guilt so ruin us? As a wave spilling over Charybdis crashes against another that it meets, so these souls did in their frantic dance. I saw more people here than at any point above, on one side and another, with great screams shoving heavy weights with their chest. They smashed together, and as soon as that, they turned around, pushing their loads and hollering, why do you hold on to stuff? And why do you throw it out? In this way, each one traverses the miserable circle on either hand to the opposite point, hollering their shameful meter at each other, only to turn around when reaching that point and follow the half-circle back around to the other jousting list. The passage divides itself into two pieces. There is the guardian or the threatening figure at the front of the fourth circle, and then there is the overview of the circle itself. In fact, we're kind of getting a structural look at how the cantos are set up. In each of these circles, we've had a guardian figure, an overview, and then a further digression. In the last two circles, the lustful and the glutton, we had a digression with one of the sinners. In this circle, it's going to go completely differently. But for now, we're just still up at the overview part. So I want to divide this, my translation. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com under a header, Walking with Dante, right there at the top of the page. Uh, drop a comment if you want. And otherwise, I'm going to divide this passage into two sections. Plutus. Let's start with that line he says, Pape Setan, Pape Setan, Alepe. That's a very curious line. I told you that the guardian figures were going to become increasingly inarticulate, and we have reached one here who is speaking some unknown language. Let me say a few things about this. It's a little curious what Plutus says, standing here at the mm, entrance to the fourth circle of hell. First of all, he uses the word Satan, Satan. This is the only time 
the word Satan will occur in the comedy. We just hit it right here with Plutus. He's saying Pape, which sounds a little bit like Pope, like the Tuscan word for Pope, a little bit, Papa, but this is Pape, so it's corrupted, or maybe Father, Papa, maybe. Papa Satan, Papa Satan, and then he says Alepe. Many, many commentators have pointed to this Alepe as the Tuscan um, translation of the initial letter of the Hebrew alphabet Aleph, or the Greek letter Alpha, because, you know, God is the Alpha and the Omega. If that's the case, then Plutus may be saying something like, Oh, Father Satan, my God, my Alpha, or maybe, Oh, Pope Satan, my God, or my Alpha, something like that. But honestly, it's not translatable. And I think that's part of the point. It's not exactly, we can't nail it down what it's supposed to say. However, remember last time I told you, or maybe a couple times ago, I said that many people now read the comedy vertically. If you've read ahead, you'll know that there is a striking parallel to the opening of the seventh canto of Paradiso. That opens with a beautiful Latin hymn. This opens with what could only be called infernal nonsense. Pape Satan, Pape Satan Alepe. Plutus started in with a clucking voice, less and less human, going down, Charon, Minos, Cerberus, Plutus. Now, if you remember in the last canto, when we finished canto six, Dante said we came upon Plutus, the great enemy, which sounds like a giant figure. I mean, this is the kind of language you would use for Satan himself. Plutus, the great enemy. But this Plutus seems almost comical. There's a lot of talk about this Plutus over the ages in commentary. I should let you know that the word is not Plutus in the Tuscan. I have followed most translators as making it Plutus, but in the Tuscan, it's Pluto. You know, Pluto, the god of the underworld. Many people have thought that Dante has conflated Pluto and Plutus, the god of wealth, into this figure. But I'm not so sure why we should buy that Dante has conflated them. I'm not so sure this isn't Pluto standing here because of that last line of the last canto, the great enemy. I understand Plutus is the god of wealth, and well, to tell you the plot ahead, this is the circle of the avaricious, the greedy. So it does stand to reason that the god of wealth would be standing there. But why are we shying away from the word Pluto, which is sitting right there in in the Tuscan? It's a weird connective problem that has gone on and on. It is true that Cicero, who Dante would know, did connect Pluto and Plutus. Gold comes from underground. Uh, Pluto is often seen as a very rich figure living underground as king of the underworld. Maybe. There's a lot of talk in the commentaries in modern times about Isidore of Seville, the great last scholar of the classical age, Isidore of Seville, writing about a connection between Pluto and Plutus. I spent over a week trying to find that connection in Isidore of Seville's, Seville's etymologies. 
I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it anywhere. I don't know if this is a mistake that's entered English commentary and has just sat there for for decades now and scholars keep repeating it because one said it and then another said it. I don't know. I can't find it. Um, maybe if you know the, the exact connection or Isidore of Seville connects Pluto and Plutus, the exact reference in the etymologies, maybe you could tell me. But it's all very curious. And more curious still is that in the last canto, again, Plutus was called the great enemy, and yet this character almost seems comic. Plutus started in with his nonsense and a clucking voice, and my, I said, well-heeled sage, genteel, well-born, you know, gentle folk in the medieval context of gentle is the word in the Tuscan. My well-heeled sage, who knew all things, said this to fortify me, don't let your fear hurt you. No matter his power, he won't impede our way down this rock slab. Notice we're getting a better and better look at hell, rock slabs. We're getting more and more detail about what inferno, what this thing actually is, conical, rocky, etc. Then Virgil turns to the puffy face and says, shut up, cursed wolf. Notice all this bestial imagery that's going on and inhuman imagery here. Shut up, cursed wolf. Wolf, we've seen this before. We've seen a wolf in the first canto, the she-wolf, the ravening she-wolf. Also, I should let you know that in Ezekiel, in twenty-two, chapter 22, verse 27, uh, wolves are compared to the avaricious, or the avaricious, the greedy, are seen to be wolves. And later, I should let you know, in Purgatorio, when we get up onto the cornice of avarice, we'll have another reference to the Anticalupa, the old she-wolf. So again, this wolf imagery comes up here and it's going to be repeated in Purgatorio for wolves. It's got a biblical reference behind it. And then we had that wolf, but a she-wolf in the initial opening bits of comedy in Canto 1. So there's, there's clearly some kind of connection being made here, although it seems vague to me. What seems important is a kind of horrid inhumanness. And let the rage, Virgil says, inside you devour you. Now, this is an interesting point. Let the rage inside you devour you, because that line looks back to the previous canto of the gluttons, devour you, and looks forward to the end of this canto, because canto seven is ultimately going to descend from the fourth circle of the avaricious into the fifth circle of the wrathful. So that line, let the rage inside you devour you, is looking both ways. It's looking back at the gluttons, and it's looking forward to the end of this canto when we descend to the fifth circle of the of the wrathful. Again, notice Dante's careful work at structure here. And Virgil then gives his spell. This trip to the depths is not without a cause. It is willed on high where Michael made his vendetta. I literally translated it right out of the Tuscan. Fe la vendetta. Made his vendetta against the prideful blitz, you know, of the demons. But I just want to stop here for a second. Made his vendetta. I didn't bring this up with the gluttons, but we're starting to develop a thematic that is going to become incredibly important in Inferno, and that is the relationship of shame and vendetta. 
the shameful gluttons and the shameful Florentines who put each other to death, who put each other to rout, ends up bringing up vendettas on all levels. And here, again, Virgil insists that Michael made a vendetta against the prideful blitz of the fallen angels. This notion of shame and vendetta, a cycle of violence tying the two together, will become increasingly important in Inferno, and we can start to see it forming, this thematic here. Remember I said to you, this is what's so wild about Dante, is that he drops small hints, smaller and then bigger and bigger bigger and then the hints get larger and then he finally drops the whole load on you and he starts to set up things long in advance before they drop this isn't going to drop the final vendetta problem until way later in inferno but it's already being set up by describing not the Florentines necessarily in the last canto who are warring against each other as guilty or sinful but as shameful and shame leads to vendettas, which leads to violence. Oh, wow, it's coming. It's such a huge issue for Dante. Moving on into the first metaphor simile in the canto. As sails billowed in the wind fall into a knotty mess when the mainmast gives way, so that cruel beast fell to the ground. Well, if this is the great enemy... That really was not much, was it? I mean, this figure standing there with a wolf face, a wolf body, a puffy face, it clucks like a hen. I'm not quite sure exactly what it is. And then it just collapses on the ground into a mess. That doesn't sound like the great enemy to me. That sounds like not much at all. It sounds like almost a comedic figure, almost silly in some ways. They have a couple points on that. But let me first say that this simile, a sails billowed in the wind, fall into a naughty mess when the main mask gives way, is continuing the shipwreck thematics throughout comedy. We've already seen shipwrecks in the first canto when Dante says he comes up toward the hill like somebody who has survived out of the deep and come up onto the shore. We're going to start to see more and more discussion of shipwreck, and shipwreck is going to become a linking thematic throughout. I don't necessarily think that this references back to the first canto. It's that the notion of shipwreckage and ships that wreck become a tying thematic. Let me explain this just a little bit. Um, when people are constructing novels, let's say, let's take modern novels, you often work out a pattern inside a novel of references. And those patterns are ways that you kind of mm, subliminally, that's not really right, but subliminally link the novel together. For example, in the book group that I, that I lead online, we just got over a novel, a fabulous novel, Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. And we noted the novelist crafts the word anger and irony in a constant linking throughout. And you'd have to notice it over time to notice that this is pulling through the entire novel and it's kind of holding the novel together. It's not that every time anger or irony comes up, they necessarily comment on each other, but you're pulling a thread of a tapestry through a longer narrative and it gives a kind of, well, like you said, subliminal, it gives a background 
unification to it. And I think that's part of what Shipwreck is doing. It's coming into comedy at distinct moments like a thread in a tapestry, and it's helping us to set it in our minds in a fuller way, to unite the thing together as Plutus falls here to the ground. Not so much of a, uh, what, a huge enemy that's standing there. It's a curious passage. It is Pluto in the Tuscan. I left it as Plutus because it is the way almost all translators, even in Italian, talk about this figure. And I wonder, and this is what I finally wonder, this is the shortest bit, the briefest encounter of any blocking figure yet in Inferno. And I wonder if, A, this constant problem of speed, of the speed of the narrative is coming into play here, and I also wonder if, hmm, this is a supposition part, but if Dante is losing a little bit of his focus. Oh, this is a hard thing to say, and it seems silly to say. But I wonder if the structure, guardian figure, overview of the, of the ring of hell, hmm, the specifics about that ring, dealing with figures in that ring, I wonder if that structure that is getting set up is becoming a little repetitive. And I wonder if the poet is getting a little bored of it. Because honestly, fastest guardian figure dealt with, a little bit confusing. Who is this Pluto, Plutus? A little bit confusing about why is he the great enemy and yet he just falls down to the ground. And here's another bit that's confusing, which will come back to haunt us throughout Canto 7. How does Virgil, remember, who doesn't know anything about God and anything theological, how does Virgil know about the archangel Michael? It is willed on high where Michael made his vendetta against the prideful Blitz. Oops. It seems like Virgil's character has slipped there just slightly. Virgil has given an extraordinarily Christian answer to the problem. This is not his spell, which is the kind of, oh, it's willed on high and let us go and you can't stop us, which has been the case with Karen and Minos. This is instead a much more theologically centered curse against Plutus. The archangel Michael made his vendetta against the prideful Blitz. Wait a minute, this is Virgil talking. A little slippage going on here. And this is why I wonder, and this is going to slip throughout the canto, this is why I wonder if this canto is going to torque and twist in certain ways. Now, I know that this is hard for some people to understand because, after all, Dante is supposed to be the divinely inspired poet. I don't hold to that. So I'm okay with Dante torquing and slipping a bit in his poetics. And I wonder, throughout this canto, you're going to hear me wonder it again and again and again, if the structure, if the thematics, if the whole programmatic effect of how Inferno is getting set up is coming back to haunt the poet just a little bit. In this way, we descended into the fourth pit, observing more of the sorrowful rim that puts all the evil of the universe in a sack. This is a beautiful bit in the Tuscan because the verb is actually, there's a verb there that's actually used in sacca, in sacked, put in a sack. And this begins the notion that words can be created for the moment that they're in. And as we go forward, Dante's neologisms, the words he makes up, 
will become thicker and thicker throughout comedy. When we get to Paradiso, neologisms will hit us right and left. Words that Dante makes up until we're going to reach these unbelievable statements which are almost impossible to translate into English because the neologisms in the Tuscan are so thick. But here, insaka, a verb, to insack, to besack, to, uh, what's the word? We don't even have a word like this in English. What would be the word that puts all the universe in a sack? That's how I had to, all the evil of the universe in a sack. That's how I had to translate it. But we don't have a word that, that insacks all the evil of the universe. And of course, I'm not telling you anything. We're amongst the avaricious. So sacks are very appropriate right here. And then the poet breaks out into a oh, a prayer, a plea, an exhortation. Ah, God's justice. Who could stock all this new torment and pain that I saw? And why does our guilt so ruin us? It's a wild little bit, that tercet right there, because it shifts from, I think, from Dante the poet figure, ah, God's justice. Who could stock all this new torment and pain? that I saw now it shifted back to the pilgrim and then why does our guilt so ruinous shifts back to the poet in the background asking a thematic question that tercet is really complicated it's a little bit muddled because it goes back from the poet to the pilgrim and then back to the poet again See, I think this canto is a bit problematic as a wave it goes on slipping over Charybdis the great whirlpool Charybdis. As a wave spilling over Charybdis crashes against another that it meets, so these souls did in their frantic dance. And the word here is rida. Rida is a popular dance in the Middle Ages in Italy in which participants link arms in a circle and uh, they, they dance around the circle, reversing directions with each verse and each line. And of course, this dance gets wilder and wilder the drunker you get. Arita does. And that's kind of the point, is to drink and be wild and fall down and all that stuff in this circular dance that keeps reversing directions with each new line or each new verse of the song. I saw more people here than at any point above. The circles are getting more and more crowded, not just because they're smaller. There's actually more people packed into each one. This is a bird's eye view down onto the whole thing. We're looking at the circles straight down. And I should say, this is a point that Robert Hollander, the great Dante scholar, brings up. If you look down, and this is the first time we see this entire ring of hell as if in a bird's eye view, if you look down, the ring forms a zero, which is super ironic since we're amongst the avaricious. All of their hoarding and all of their wealth ends up being a big zero, a big circle. This overview we have, I saw more people here, one on one side, the other, and we see them rolling these stones round and round this giant circle of inferno. Here's what I think. You know how in every translation of Dante, there's a map? It always starts this way, right? There's a map of Inferno, a map of Purgatorio, a map of Paradiso. Every, any translation you, you pick up, any commentary, any Dante book you pick up is going to have one of these maps of, the, of Dante's world. Here's Inferno with all its levels. Here's Purgatorio. Here's Paradiso. I think it does a terrible disservice to the poem because in comedy... The architecture of each bit of Inferno, of Mount Purgatory, and of the heavens 
is slowly revealed. And to know it all up front doesn't let comedy do what comedy needs to do, which is slowly, slowly reveal this architecture. We're not going to get a full notion of what hell looks like until Canto 11 of Inferno. We don't get a full notion of what Mount Purgatory looks like until Canto 18 of the Purgatorio. We don't get a full notion of what the heavens look like until Canto 22 of Paradiso. I think that this is very important. I think it's important that in Inferno so far we've had Dante peer over the rim, then we've had him noted kind of up on a cliff looking at the lustful. Now we're getting a vision of the entire circle. I think this is all extraordinarily important. Last time in the Gluttons, we saw them walking along the curve of the circle. We're slowly developing a notion of this throughout. And to give us a map up front, to say this is what hell looks like, it misses the point of comedy, which is this one of the points, one of the many points of comedy, which is the slow revelation of the landscape. So here they are. Where they're pushing these things around at each other, they smash together, and it's these giant weights, these rocks, these boulders, they're pushing them around, they smash together, and as soon as that, they turned around and started pushing the loads and hollering, why do you hold on to stuff and why do you throw it out? Actually, what they say in the Tuscan is perché tieni and perché burli. Why do you hold and why do you toss? You'll note that there is an interesting redefinition of sin here. It's not just greed. It's also prodigality. It's also throwing out, wasting. It's not just hoarding things, holding on to them. It's also spending too much. And so suddenly we have this notion of a sin as two poles, as being avaricious and also being prodigal interesting that suddenly the sin we haven't had this in the lustful we didn't of course have this in limbo what what, what what would limbo be what are the two poles of limbo we didn't have this with the lustful <laughs> and there's a reason for that we didn't have this with the gluttons <laughs> there's a reason for that and we'll talk about this more in the next episode but here suddenly we have two sides of a sin avaricious why do you hold on to stuff and prodigality why do you throw it out what do you waste so much this is an extraordinary change in what is going on here. In this way, each one traverses the miserable circle, thereby outlining zero, on either hand to the opposite point, hollering their shameful meter, on tosometro, shameful, hear it? Shame, vendetta, just above. Michael made his vendetta, hollering their shameful meter. There is no poetry in their speech. Perché tieni, perché burli. It's, it's not pretty. And in fact, what's going to happen over the course of this canto is language itself is going to lose a lot of its prettiness. Funny, right? Amongst the avaricious who so crave gold, which glitters so much. Here, the poetry is going to get more and more 
difficult. And in fact, if you were reading this in the Tuscan, you would see that the Tuscan gets very crabbed here. It gets broken up. There are clauses inserted inside other clauses. It's difficult. There are intensifiers. There's wild stresses in the lines. There are harsh rhythms throughout this canto, the language itself will coarsen over the course of this canto, which is about the people who love gold so much. Interesting point, right? So they're hollering their shameful meter at each other, only to turn around when reaching the point and follow the half circle back around to the other jousting list. This is a particularly galling bit, the reference to jousting, because A, joust jousting is about honor, not shame. And these people, as we'll discover, are the very people who should never joust, but we'll have to wait for the next episode to know who they are. But these people are the people who should never joust. And furthermore, they are jousting with rocks or weights or boulders. You can't joust with a rock. That's not possible. <laughs> Just roll it with your chest and bash into each other and roll back around. I know, listen, this has bugged me for decades, this canto, because I can't figure out how they roll their boulders with their chests and then smash into each other. And then what do they do? They crawl up over the top of their boulder and get back on the other side and go the other way? Or is it a larger space than that? So they just walk around it and it bothers me like crazy. I don't actually think it's supposed to bother anybody. But... In the next episode, we'll talk about who these people are and how they got to be where they are. But the thing that's so interesting here is we will have no Francesca. We will have no Chaco. No one will, out, will step out. We'll have no Homer, Ovid, or Horace, and Lucan. We'll have no individuation, which is super ironic, right? Because the accumulation of wealth or the prodigal spending of wealth is supposed to separate you from the herd. And here, in this canto, shoving the rocks round the circle and bashing into each other while they scream out their curses, why do you hold and why do you toss out? These people are not differentiated in any way. It's just a horde. It's a horde that's been insacked into this circle. And you'll note one last thing. You'll notice that their curses, perché tieni and perché burli, you'll notice that their curses are ineffective. Virgil's curse to Plutus was effective. The thing fell down like a mainmast giving way. But we'll know much more about who they are and much more about how they got here in the next episode of Walking with Dante when we're going to take on the next bits of Canto 7. We've been here at lines 1 through 35, and we're going to move on down in the Canto and see the sinners themselves. So if you want to check out this uh, uh, translation, look at my website. You can find it there. And connect with me on Twitter under my name, Mark Scarborough. Subscribe, rate this podcast, do the things you need to do. I'll do the things I need to do. And we will keep walking with Dante into this incredibly developing structure and landscape of Inferno. <laughs>